and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Today, my guest is Dr. Christine Copper, who is the faculty athletics representative at the United States Naval Academy, which in and of itself is a fascinating topic, but we won't go there just yet. She was the very first faculty athletics representative on the NCAA Division I Board of Directors, and at the time was also the FAR representative to the Division I National Student Athlete Advisory Committee. She co-chaired the NCAA Working Group on Values-Based Revenue Distribution that brought historic change to the NCAA's financial distribution model by including academic incentives for the first time ever. And oh, by the way, she is the past president of the Faculty Athletics Representative Association. In the meantime, she's also a chemistry professor at the United States Naval Academy, and she was appointed to the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics in 2018, and to date is the only FAR to serve on that board. So a person of first, Christine, welcome to the podcast. Aaron, thank you so much for the great introduction. I look forward to talking to you this afternoon a bit. And we do have a dog in the background, just so you know, so we may have an occasional bark and, and adding of that to the conversation as well. So, but we'll start with becoming the Navy's FAR back in 2008, and you served on something called the Naval Academy Athletic Association Board of Control. Walk us through those two roles on campus and what responsibilities they entail. So the faculty athletic representative uh, responsibilities at Navy are, are similar to what they are elsewhere. Um, you know, our three areas of, of influence and, and interest are institutional control of athletics, student athlete well-being, and academic integrity of athletics. So uh, all those things are, are things that I, um, I work on at the Naval Academy. Um, and then as part of that, our athletic association is actually a nonprofit corporation. So because it's a real challenge with government budgets and the unpredictability of those uh, to try to run a division one athletics program just with government funding. So many, many years ago, the athletic department was, um, was created as a standalone uh, 5013C nonprofit corporation. Um, but, but it is very tied to the, the academy. So the athletic director is the president of the um, corporation, but he still is uh, directly reports to the admiral, right, our president. Um, so the board of control is the, the corporate board of that nonprofit corporation. So that's perhaps one of the more interesting things I never thought I would be doing as an FAR was to be sitting on the corporate board of a nonprofit. Um, so we, we look at a lot of budgetary things. We look at um, even we were working on our agreement that allows the, the NAAA, the athletic association to run the way it does um, and how it's connected to the academy and to always make sure we're in compliance with all the federal regulations with that. Um, and then we also, as part of that board, I chair the policy committee of the board, which essentially acts as a, an athletics committee or an athletics council uh, would act at a, maybe a regular college is what I like to call the rest of the world. Um, so, so again, it's, you know, the, the faculty athletic rep job here is, it's, it's a little bit different just because of that nonprofit corporation piece. But again, the areas of student athlete well-being is, is probably why all of us got into the faculty athletic rep business. Uh, but then institutional control is, is something that, you know, we have to be mindful of and, and be monitoring. And then also any, um, any kind of academic and eligibility concerns as well. 
And and you said that the your budget comes from the government. <laughs> so how does it, how does an athletic director do you have a sense of do they need to raise additional money as well? Is there a large fundraising component, or is it mostly you know this is what we're asking for? And as you told me earlier, it's either the education or building a battleship. I mean, we you know the choices here. <laughs> Yeah, so the budget of the Naval Academy itself comes from the government, but again, in order to run a very successful Division I athletic program, which is, is in the charter of the nonprofit corporation, you will run a Division I program, uh, the athletic association has to be pretty much self-sustaining and, and work with donor dollars. So there are some funds that come from the Naval Academy's budget from the federal government, but I think typically the AD talks of it in terms of about 93% of the funds that are used for the athletic program are either fundraised or are, um, you know, funds that, that we earn by way of, you know, football, basketball, whatever, ticket sales and such. So there is a huge uh, donor component to it. And then also just like any other school trying to, to get fans and, and corporate sponsors and such to, to power the machine. That's pretty amazing. 93%. Wow. That that's a lot. I mean, you hear of schools that are athletic departments that are 75% dependent on student fees or donations. That's a really high number. Um, yeah, there's a student fee piece, but but it's not high. It's not like you see in the, you know, when a lot of the students are realizing these fees exist and are trying to question them. Right. Um, so there's there's a little bit of that piece. And again, that kind of counts as some of the, the money from the federal side, since our students are all paid by the government to come to school. So it's essentially funneled over to athletics, but it's it's not a large portion. And um and yeah, it is, it's amazing to watch the athletic program uh, with 33 varsity sports and those students, um, that's a third of our student body plays in our varsity athletic program to watch it be so uh, self-sustaining. Our athletic director has done wonders in that arena. Wow, that's a very interesting challenge uh, for him as a leader to be able to sustain that. So when we think about the FAR role on other campuses, that FAR navigates the academic issues, on behalf of the athletics department, while keeping the president, provost, admiral informed of internal and national issues. How does that compare to your role at the Naval Academy? I imagine the chain of command becomes an issue. If so, how do you navigate it? Um, I, I think I think the chain of command is, is helpful because quite honestly, I'm one of the few faculty members if, if I think the only one who can say my chain of command in this role as the FAR is me straight to the admiral in charge of the institution, right? Because I was appointed by him to be the FAR. Now our provost um, was part of the selection process as was the AD, right? They both had to be comfortable with the person in this position. And, and prior to even meeting with either of them, I, I got um, had to make it through a, a faculty senate uh, selection process, basically. So, so it you know our our academic side uh, pretty much runs like like regular college. Um, you know, we have deans of our our three different schools and and department chairs, and and our provost is in charge of all the academics. Um, so, so nothing's really particularly different in the chain of command piece, other than the fact that maybe as an FAR, I, I have plenty of access to all the different admirals that I've served under. Uh, I think maybe that's the biggest difference is that our admirals typically serve for four years. 
Okay. Um, and then, then they're, they're on their way to, and then they retire. So um, that maybe is a little different, although more recently it seems that college president's um, terms are kind of, I think the average length of a college president now is like six years. So other FARs may have more turnover in their bosses as well. That's, that's really interesting. So everybody clearly understands on campus that you have the right to go see the Admiral. Nobody's saying, hey, why, just, why doesn't she go to the provost first? They know that they understand that role. Absolutely. And I'm very lucky that the athletic director is very supportive of what I do. And, and he, he knows I'm going to ask a lot of questions and he knows I'm going to say no to things that I don't think are a good idea. And um, he has invited me every week. I for, every, for 12 years as the FAR, I've sat at his senior staff meeting every single week. So he's, he's allowed me all the access I need to, um, to have the opportunity to, to know what's going on and, and be helpful to, to the students in the end. And you were telling me earlier that you, you yourself are a former student athlete, so you know what the experience should look like. And um, is that how you guide your thinking when you're sitting in those senior staff meetings? Uh, I do. I mean, the Naval Academy, you know, it's, it's, I, I had a division three athletic career. I was a tennis player and, you know, our coaches in division three had to, they couldn't make it all about athletics, right? Cause there wasn't a scholarship that we were beholden to. Um, so uh, that, that happens at the Naval Academy, right? We, we can't make it all about athletics. We can't have students there that their main priority is athletics. You know, they have to graduate in four years. They have to take uh, they all graduated with a bachelor of science degree. So they have to take a, a pretty large um, core curriculum or general education requirements as you might consider them. Um, and then they follow a major as well. So, so they're, they're very busy and they're, you know, they, they've got a, a lot to take care of in terms of their military obligations as well. So I, I think I can understand, even though I didn't go here, I can understand the situation here in the fact that, that it, it can't just be about the sport. And you have to recruit to the institution, not just to the team. And, and then I do appreciate as an FAR, the fact that I do have coaches who know that. So I can have pretty easy conversations with coaches with regard to missed class time or support for students and so forth, because you know we try to um, treat all our students as midshipmen first and, and not athletes first. And, you know, because that's the only way they're going to be able to, to finish our program successfully. And then, you know, we're going to give them all a job, right? And I always think of it as I don't really want you to fly a plane over my house if you didn't do everything you were supposed to do at the Naval Academy. Right. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that you think about, again, the Naval Academy is a Division I program and so many other Division I programs we've heard or witnessed over the years, you know, exceed greatly the 20 hours a week of, of practice that the NCAA allows. How do you manage that in the life of a midshipman? I mean, how do you, is it truly 20 hours in season, out of season, or is there a set schedule that the athlete goes through in season, out of season? Explain that to us. Yeah, I think, you know, when I talk to, to our, if we have recruits on campus and I, I'm talking to them about our academic program, one of the things I mentioned is that it's, it's kind of nice that this is um, one of the few places where the, there, there is time for athletics that we cannot schedule any academic things. Although you as an athlete can miss my academic class for your athletic travel, 
right? And as a faculty member, I'm okay with that because again, we keep travel to a minimum and it's very well managed. But the beauty of the Naval Academy is every day after school, there's a sports period where all the midshipmen are doing something. And if you add in our club sport athletes, you get to half of the student body. And then the other half is part of a robust intramural program that they all have to participate in. So it's very difficult for our coaches to even get to the 20 hours a week, let alone exceed it, because they have this window after school where the students are all available, um, basically from four o'clock until about 6.30. And then, you know, they might do a lift or some film over lunch, or, you know, the crew team will be on the water in the morning and so forth. But, you know, the, that's another thing our coaches have to understand. You know, it's good news. You're guaranteed to have your players during that afternoon block because no one else can schedule there. But then when seven o'clock comes, there's military obligations. And when eight o'clock at night comes, there's study hour. So it's it's very compartmentalized, but it's very scripted. And, and I think we just all understand the, the mission of the academy is moral, mental, and physical. So each one gets its time and, and can't get in the way of the others. So there's, uh, I guess it's understood then that uh, other members of your conference, the Patriot League, might not have as rigid a daily schedule. They might have more room for coaches to take a little bit more time, but that's okay. And that's how coaches are evaluated with the, under those uh, restrictions. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think I think we can come close to the 20 hours. I don't think we're missing out on a lot. And again, it depends sport by sport. Um, but I, I also, that's why I'm glad we're in the Patriot League because I, I believe the schools in the Patriot League are all functioning as we are, maybe not with the strict um, chunks of time prescribed in terms of you know, the afternoons or sports period kind of thing. But I, I believe those are also students who are very academically involved. And, you know, maybe they have a lab that doesn't schedule and they have to go to lab instead of practice or whatever it is. I, I feel like competing in the Patriot League, the other students at the other schools are probably in similar situations where their coaches can't obligate tons of time. And the focus of the league is definitely an academic uh, as much as athletic focus. So I don't think coaches would want to um, try to abuse the, the time uh, for their, use too much time with their students and put them at a disadvantage academically. Yeah, and especially with the four-year requirement. And, and you mentioned earlier that that's one of the reasons why faculty members are given more time to give one-on-one -on -one to students to make sure that they're able to progress through and, and graduate in four years, that that is a really big deal. And that's a very different philosophy than so many other Division I programs. It is, and we, um, you know, typical college, you graduate with about 120 credits. All of our majors add up to about 140 credits wow. that you have to finish in four years. And, and again, some of that is the, the core curriculum has a lot of lab hours to it because it's technically focused, but also the military coursework that they do. So, um, you know, our students are taking 18, 19 credits a semester, and they, they can't really, you know, drop out of things because they'll get behind. So, um, you know, we have a lot of support in, in place to make sure they can get to the other end. You know, our graduation rate is always somewhere in the 90, 90 and above percent, right? So, you know, we want to hire our students into our Navy and Marine Corps jobs. So we do do what we need to do to, to help them to, to be successful. Um, and, you know, as long as they try, we'll try, right? It's very difficult to invest everything we've invested in these students and have them come here and, and depend on them to become an officer 
Um, we don't take it lightly to say, oh, well, we'll just, you know, weed them out and use the ones that are left, right? We really think we've brought students who can be successful and we'll do everything we can without lowering any standards to, to have them get to the finish line. Sure, sure. Very important that you do that. Um, let's shift gears to the committees that you served on in the NCAA, this values-based revenue distribution committee first. And for those who don't know, I think it was, what, three years ago when the NCAA started distributing funds based on academic performance? Uh, is, does that sound right? Yeah. So give us just a quick snapshot of why that was important and what kind of dollars we're talking about. Yeah, so that, that committee, I ended up co-chairing that working group because I was a member of the board of directors at the time. Um, so it was a committee that, or a working group that had presidents and a few athletic directors. Um, and we were trying to change behavior. Um, you know, if you're familiar with the revenue distribution, the biggest chunks of money you can get were by winning men's games in men's basketball. Right. And that really was the payoff to your conference. And then your conference divided it however their prescription was. So we wanted to change behavior. We didn't want folks to be doing things that were, um, you know, basketball focused because that's where the money was. So the idea was to come up with a way that we could have people chase, chase uh, dollars academically. Right. So, um, we worked for a while. We tried to use measures that already existed. So that's why we ended with some criteria for getting that money based on the APR that was already in place and the GSR rates that are already reported. Um, and, you know, we looked at a lot of data and we looked at making sure we weren't um, going to disenfranchise uh, schools that were low, um, low revenue schools. And we, um, we wanted to make sure we uh, that it was fair on campus. So each team counted the same. You couldn't have some teams that were academically um, underperforming, but cancel them out with, you know, with a big team that does better or whatever it is. So we wanted to, to make sure it all, um, it was all kind of, kind of changing behavior, right? And the, and, and the money starts off small. I think last year was actually the first year they distributed and, and by the calculations we did at the time, the prediction was about $50,000 for the unit the first year. But by the time um, it, it went out, not too many years, it's almost a half a million dollars and, and the unit's the same size as a basketball unit, right? So it's real money. And that, that growth was gonna be pretty quick. I, I don't recall the exact number of years, but it was, it was like 2024 maybe by then it's it, it was going to be similar to a basketball unit which is you know if I found it on the street I'd pick it up right <laughs> um and and I think behavior changed right I, I it was kind of interesting as soon as we announced as soon as the the membership and by way of the board of directors approved our proposal for this academic unit um, you know, consultants were being hired to go to conferences to talk about how we're going to get our APR for this team up or that team yes. up because because now there was money. So it wasn't let's just make sure our APR is high enough to play in the postseason. This was let's make sure our APR is high enough to get this academic unit. Um, so I think our goal was reached. I, I think at the time I was a little concerned. We were a little too much on the everybody gets a trophy side with the <laughs> metrics that we set. Um, but we didn't want to err on the side of nobody's going to try because it, it's it's futile, right? Yeah. So so to me, and, and, and knowing the APR just constantly climbs, which again, not a bad thing, 
but um, you know, at the time I was a little, well, we could have made it a little harder to get, but, but we changed behavior. So, um, so, you know, the more people get it, the smaller the unit ends up being, but again, right. it's, it's big money and it'll track what the basketball wins are. So instead of just constantly, you know, doing things for, for a basketball win, now you can do things academically or, or graduation rates to, uh, to make sure you, you get enough money to then maybe put back in. And, and then if you're getting that money, you put it back into the students and help them perform. That's what I was gonna ask you. So does it go back into like academic counseling or other support services, tutoring, that type of thing? Or is it is it intended to fund a specific area? We didn't prescribe it to fund a specific area, but the only hope was that if you have, you know, if you have more money and, and you're trying to make sure you keep getting that money, you put it into the things that get you there. Okay. Okay, makes sense. You were also part of the National Student Athlete Advisory Committee. Now that uh, that's been around for what eight or nine years now, a national committee or longer? I'm not. I can't remember. Uh, quite honestly, I don't. I don't know the history of it. Um, I, it's it's been there since I've been afar for twelve years. So I okay. think it's it goes back quite a ways. Um, so these are representatives, I think, from all the different conferences that come together and talk about some of the national issues that. That student athletes are facing. What were some of your takeaways from that experience? Um, yeah, so I, you know, that I, I asked to be the faculty athletic rep liaison to that group because I was sitting on the board of directors and I really felt like I needed to know what the students were thinking. And I felt it very strongly because my school is so much different than others. And I felt like I needed to talk to regular students and find out what's going on in yeah. the regular world of athletics. So I also um, stepped up to serve as the faculty rep to the um, students in the American Athletic Conference on their SAC so I could learn more about their experiences. Because again, that's quite different than the um, Patriot yeah. League even. Um, so it was, it was neat to be there with them. They're amazing young people that are gonna go and do amazing things. I think what I learned most is if you give them a tasking, they'll do it. And if you ask them for their opinion, they will settle on a pretty reasonable opinion. Hmm. Um, we, I, I somewhere in the, after the values-based working group, but before I was, uh, my term was up on the board, I was on the, the transfer working group 3.0 or whichever one it was. Um, and we had two student athletes on there and a great example of their, their influence was they and, and voicing the thoughts from their colleagues in National SAC were saying, look, if you make this transfer portal, there needs to be um, some responsibility on the student side too. It can't be they just put their name in the portal and on a Wednesday because they're unhappy. There needs to be some, some responsibility or they have to have some skin in the game. So they were actually the ones who came up with the idea that the students would be relinquishing their, their scholarship at the end of that term if they entered the portal. And that was interesting to see the students themselves trying to make sure that you know, they understood students want things, but they also understood that, you know, students have to have some accountability or, or it's not going to work. So that idea actually had come from them. And now that idea is kind of under fire a little bit. But uh, I thought it was a pretty mature thing they, they came to for that. And again, that's just one example of working with them. But, you know, they meet for three days at a time. Um, three times a year and I would sit with them for all those days and, and was thankful for it. And I definitely learned more from them than they ever got out of me. Um, <laughs> but they, they, um, they tackled the tough issues. They did time demands and a lot of work on that when I was in there. And then now they're you know talking a lot about the name, image and likeness and, 
And a lot of their um, ideas are to be able to uh, bring education to athletes on campuses so they understand what the issues are and what their responsibilities are or how to not get themselves caught up in some kind of violation. Um, but they also, since I was with them, got seats at the table, right? They were, there was the leader of, of the group was always sitting there on the board with me. The um, two of them were always at the division one council where, where a lot of the more operational things get decided and, and they were listened to in those rooms. You know, when the student, when the student spoke, they listened more than when the FAR spoke. It's interesting. Um, there's so much more we could we could ask about that, but I can't not ask you about all of this um, coming to bear from the Supreme Court with the Alston case, the NIL legislation that's coming down, and the the potential well realistic idea that athletes will be able to make money off their names, images, and likenesses. Um, people, uh, some legislators desire to have uh, the NCAA get a partial antitrust exemption or some sort of immunity protection. Where do FARs and, and also the FARA, the National Association, how do they provide input into some of these issues on campus, in the conference and nationally? So in my experience with the FARA organization, especially, and then it's there's kind of a matching organization for the FBS FARs, the D1A FAR group. Um, I've been active with both of those groups throughout the years. Um, typically when, when a big issue like that comes up, those, it's, it's front and center with those FARs and, and they'll, they'll come up with their, their thoughts and, and agree on those you know, through a series of you know, commenting and so forth. And then those will go as part of the feedback to whatever um, working group is working on it in the structure. So, and in recent years, you know, I was able to serve on the board because they added a FAR position and there's two FARs on the council. And, and then, you know, as they spin up these different working groups, they've, they've added FARs. I think there was an FAR, um, there were a couple FARs in the mix for the, um, the discussions about the name, image and likeness kind of things. So, so we, we do have FARs in the room, but typically the governance structure, a call goes out for comment, like, and it goes out, you know, what's the conference position? Okay. And then the conferences will push that to the school. So the schools will voice their thoughts to the conference. The conference will, will um, submit thoughts. So the FARs on their own campus can be part of the discussion by way of their own school or by way of their campus or their conference FARs. But then separately, those two associations of FARA and the 1A FAR, in my experience, many times we wrote kind of a position paper and pushed that in as here's what these organizations of FARs think. Okay, um, okay. You must spend some time then polling your colleagues on campus to see what their takes are, or do you feel like they just aren't engaged enough to be able to give a really good opinion? Um, yeah, I, I, I don't. I mean, I haven't asked the faculty at large at the Naval Academy what they think about paying a student for their name, image, and likeness. Yeah. Um, especially during a pandemic, I think people would be like, what, what is that? What, <laughs> what? I'm just trying to make my, my Zoom get off. Yeah. Right? So I, I, I don't, um, I think I'm the most uh, educated voice on our yeah. campus from the faculty just by my position and by my interest in this position and by all the time I spend trying to keep track of everything. Um, so, but I will have conversations with our provost at times um, as the leader of our, our faculty. Um, but, but 
typically many of these issues, again, a lot of them don't even affect the Naval Academy, like name, image, and likeness. The military academy students are not allowed to get money for their name, image, and likeness. There's already a memorandum out there. So our students aren't going to be able to, to participate in, in that, that change. So I, I don't need to ask anybody because we can't do it. Um, you know, some of the other, I don't even know what other issues, I mean, our, our SWA pushes out a lot of issues to our coaches and our administrators in athletics. And I, I get asked as well about many of the other topics recently, some recruiting rules changes and you name it. She's very good at collecting yeah. input, input from our, our school to then pass up to the conference. But um, I'm not sure there's been too many things that our, our faculty as a whole, you know, we, we don't, even really, I mean, we, we look at progress towards degree, but really it's not a concern because if students are that, you know, if they would not make one of the NCAA wickets, they definitely weren't going to make our four-year graduation. So we're just so different that we don't have scholarships for athletics. We don't, you know, right. there's a lot of things that are, I think our faculty are very, it's a very athlete-friendly institution by way of we, like I said, a third of our students play in our 33 sports. Our faculty know it's part of our mission. Our faculty are very cooperative with students having to miss class. Our faculty are very cooperative to, to meeting with students outside of class. We don't have any academic support for our student athletes. That's any different than anyone else. We don't have any special athletic department um, support staff for that. So okay. you know, we are true believers in athletics is totally integrated into the, the mission of the school and, and is physically integrated. It's right there. We know our coaches. Some of our coaches are still tenured faculty members. Um, so it's it's about as connected as you can get. And, yeah. and again, I don't I don't know that I would want to be an FAR at, at some of the other schools that athletics is this satellite operation that you wouldn't even recognize as part of the college. I think that would be quite frustrating. Yeah, yeah. The tail wagging the dog, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I have to ask you, because this podcast is going to appear during Women's History Month, what's it like to be a female student athlete at the Naval Academy? Any sense of that? Um. I, you know, I've been there for 26 years. So when I started, the percentage of females in the student body was around 16%. And I, now I believe it's up in the upper 20s or, or close to 30%. And it's been noticeable just as a faculty member and the amount of women that are, are present. Um, we have a larger percentage of our females that play a varsity sport than we do males. I think it's almost half of our females at the academy play a varsity sport. Wow. Um, so, so, I mean, I think they have a great experience. I think they, um, you know, it's, it's again, a lot better than when I started just because there's a lot more of them there. Um, and there's quite honestly, there's more female faculty. There's more female officers that transition through on their tours at the academy. So I think things have, have constantly improved for, for our women that have been there since, you know, the first graduating class in the early 1980s. Um, but our, our student athletes, I think they have a great experience. I, I've had many of them in class. They, the female student athletes uh, outperform the non-varsity non athlete females academically. So, wow. you know, it's, it's quite a group. Um, and, and many times the, you know, you watch the top 100 grads get their names called first. And many of them are our female student athletes walking across the stage. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. 
Well, before before we end our conversation, I do have to ask you, I mean, you know, you've been in the throes of college athletics all through COVID-19. What do you see changing, if anything, coming out of this massive disruptive experience in college athletics? Well, I hope we see that, that um, you know, presidential leadership is important. And I, I, I think it was very obvious what was going on in the football arena in the fact that the NCAA had no control over the, the FBS football, right? That was being decided at the conference level. And, and that, that is meant to be a presidential decision. And, and we were watching them be made. And quite honestly, I was quite proud of some of the conferences that had made some pretty tough decisions early on based on the science that was there. Um, and then things continued to change. And I don't know if the changes were all financially motivated or not, but um, you know, with the college football being all the money from the college football playoff going straight to the FBS and, and there's no oversight that's just football centric. I, I think that was that made it really obvious that the NCAA is not in charge of anything with regard to, to football and playing their games this year. Um, I think the other piece that that I hope survives a little bit is the travel piece. Um, as you know, as a D3 athlete, I'm pretty sure it was very rare we spent the night anywhere before we played a game the next afternoon or the next evening. And we, you know, we, we weren't away from campus an awful lot. We basically, I would get out of a van, go play a tennis match, get back in a van, right? And, yeah. and I'm not complaining. I think it was great. And my coach was terrific about having us in our classes. Um, so I think with a lot of the travel restrictions, I think um, people are starting to realize that, you know, maybe we can win in division one without being gone from campus so much. Maybe right. we don't have to get to the other school to practice the day before, you know, the, their turf isn't that different than ours. Um, maybe, maybe some of these conferences that geographically make no sense um, <laughs> will, will, something will change. You know, I know there's a few sports out there with their, their leadership in their sports have, have asked for some consultants to sort out whether or not maybe there is a way to, to make it a geographic um, layout more so than, than some of these conferences that, that span, you know, regions of the country that just quite frankly don't make sense for a student trying to, trying to do academic things. Um, the only saving grace is that even with this bubble that they're proposing for the NCAA tournament is that many of our schools, the classes are all virtual, so the yeah. students can still do class. Now, I sure hope someone's checked the Wi-Fi in all those hotels in Indy in case kids are all trying to do class at the same time. Good point. <laughs> right? Good point. But I, I quite honestly, I hope, and you know, we've done it because our model is an absolutely small classes. You know, our classes are 20 students or smaller. It's all about in-person instruction. It's all by PhD holding faculty members or military officers with at least a master's degree. I mean, we do not want to be a virtual education institution. Yeah. So we're doing everything we can. I've been teaching in person with, you know, some students in front of me, some students in another room, you know, as much as we can in person, because that's, we believe in that. And I, I truly hope other institutions don't go away from that. I think it's just such a different experience to, to be sitting there staring at a screen trying to do college. I think so much is lost. Um, but you know, it's been convenient for these athletes, at least during all this, because they still can, if they do get to compete, they still can attend many of their classes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Christine, thank you so much for your time today. I have learned a ton about the Naval Academy and how, how unique it is, and also the very unique, important roles that you have played in the last several years in navigating 
you know, college athletics and its outcomes. So thank you very much. Oh, I, I appreciate it. I, could, I think I told you this is the, my only big kid job. It's the only place I interviewed and I've been here ever since and I, I love it. I would talk about the Naval Academy forever and I, I'm such a believer in the value of college athletics and what I got from it and what I see others get from it. And I, I just, it breaks my heart as we watch programs get dropped um, for in, in this, this time. I, I really hope that, that we can continue to save opportunities for these students because it, it really, it really is an educational piece of higher ed. And, and I, I just want that to, to, to live on for all these students. And, and so we can strengthen it in some of the sports and bring the higher ed part back to yeah. some of these programs that perhaps aren't, aren't um, you know, as rigid. So, but I, I appreciate your time and, and this has been terrific. Thanks, Christine.